Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, this feels, this feels The moment you decide. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Always edit. (laughs) So this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, we're calling this the History of Christian, no, wait, A History of Christian Theology. Um, and, uh. I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. So, A History of Christian Theology. Um, I'm Chad Kim. We have uh, Trevor Adams and Tom Velasco. All right. Hello, and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. For the next two episodes, Tom, Trevor, and I will be working our way through the various issues, and there are many, that relate to the Gospel of Thomas. I will link on the blog the specific text that we used, as well as an introduction to the text from Elaine Pagels that I mention regarding dating and provenance of the text. For a brief intro, the Gospel of Thomas that we are reading for this episode, which I take to be the one most commonly referred to, was found in the Nag Hammadi Library in 1945 in Egypt. The most significant text from this discovery was the Gospel of Thomas, written in Coptic, which is also the language that is still used among Christians in Egypt to this day. It is basically a collection of 114 sayings that are all attributed to Jesus. Some of them are exactly like quotes that exist in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Some are about half the same, and most have almost no relation to what is known in the Synoptics. Thus, this text is frequently used as a kind of independent text to corroborate what some scholars think are more likely actual words of Jesus. We discuss this problem in detail in this first episode on the Gospel of Thomas. As with much biblical scholarship, there are basically two camps for the dating of this text. Some want to claim it is a much earlier text, maybe contemporaneous with Mark, i.e. the late 60s AD or CE, and others think it is a late 2nd century AD or CE text. While this text was certainly not used within the early Orthodox Christian community, it was known to Irenaeus of Lyon, who denies its orthodoxy, long before the councils of Nicaea in 325. So it is in no way fair to think of Irenaeus wielding great power to suppress the text with any kind of political clout known to the later church post-Constantine, like Elaine Pagels tries to do in her, in her introduction. It is denounced by Irenaeus purely because of its preposterous claims and dubious relationship to the disciple Thomas. Now here is the first conversation. <clears throat> Apparently Robert Vanderhoos does an introduction. Van, Robert E. Van Voorst. I can link it on the blog if I have people that are interested. But, you know, he's the one who says that there are some who who want to place this before the composition of the New Testament Gospels, um, which most people place Mark as the earliest uh, in the late 60s, having to do with the destruction of the temple. Whether, I mean, you know, that, that, of course, that seems outrageous to me and to you. uh, I mean, but part of the reason that these other scholars are making this case is because they want to say there are similarities to the canonical gospels, but they're, it's different. So either it came later or earlier than the canonical gospels. It can't be contemporary with them. It's either the, it is either the, like the Q source written right away after Jesus. And I, I mean, to me, it's just kind of a bald play to say that Jesus was a misogynist. Um, that the canonical gospel writers are trying to keep you 
uh, from the truth about the person of Jesus. I mean, it just seems to be the case where even if it's not something so insidious, uh, they, they, they do want to say, like, the way scholarship works oftentimes is you get published if you say something outrageous. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, like, if, you know, it's like there, are, there might be four, peop- four different people who wrote Genesis. And so now, now there are people that suggest there are upwards of 30 people um, who have written parts of the, the to- of the first five books of the Pentateuch. I mean, it's just because it – you know, in order to get published, you propose something new and something different, um, and then people will publish you, and then people will respond to you, and on and on and on it goes. So, you know, that may be the case of why someone would say that it's 50 AD. I, of course, don't fall into that camp. But Well, I, I thought the reasoning you gave was a little strange to me. I know you're relaying their reasoning, not your own, but I, I thought it interesting you said – since it's similar but different, it cannot be uh, contemporary. It must be either prior or after. <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all are similar but different, right? And yeah. if you give the option of it being either before, simultaneous, or after, then, well, you have kind of created a tautology almost, right? Uh, it must either have been written at the same time before or after. Uh, so I, I don't know where they're kind of where they're coming from in that sense. All I can say is Jesus was a Jew. Thomas was a Jew. The Gospels sound like things written by Jews. <laughs> that is the canonical Gospels. Yeah. The Gospel of Thomas sounds like somebody for, who clearly, even if he may have had a Jewish background, but definitely, uh, and by that I mean he may have been perhaps ethnically Jewish or he may have had some familiarity with Jewish culture, but also really, really strong into Asian philosophy and uh, and the like. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah. It's just not, yeah, it's just so clearly Far Eastern inspired, I guess that's all. It's, yeah. Whereas this is, or this is Far Eastern inspired, whereas, yeah, the, the others, while well, Eastern, because I guess Jewish would kind of Eastern. Yeah, that's why I said Far Eastern a bit yeah. ago, because it is, because Jewish is considered Eastern uh, to a certain degree, but right there you're talking about the divide right down the middle between East and West, right? I mean, right. you kind of break off West at Greece, and Israel is the next thing over, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. um, so we're talking a little bit farther East. I was going to say, linguistically, the source that we have is Coptic, which is an Egyptian, well, it's a language that uh, is used in Egypt primarily, although they think it was originally composed in, in Syria, um, and probably the association with Thomas is the tradition of the church says that Thomas is the one who went east. Um, so the connections to Eastern philosophy make sense from a kind of narrative perspective where Thomas is. I mean, there are actually still churches in India called Martoma churches, uh, which are claimed to be descendant from the uh, disciple um, who the doubting disciple, as we know him from John. So anyway, I mean, that's sort of that's sort of the Eastern tradition, you know, whereas Peter is known for Rome and West, uh, Paul, you know, Asia Minor, um, still West of, yeah, still West of Israel. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that is actually a good point to bring up. Thomas is almost universally hailed as the apostle who went East, right? I mean, most uh, traditions, there's a strong tradition that says he made it to India. Uh, and I've heard a lot of arguments that say, I've heard people argue that 
that there's almost no doubt he did make it to India, that there are little nascent Christian communities that popped up there that trace themselves back to Thomas. I've heard some people assert he made it as far as China. I mean, I don't think there's any real evidence to support that necessarily, just a, a tradition. So it is intriguing to think that the so-called Gospel of Thomas is in fact very Eastern in that sense. I mean, that is a you yeah. know very interesting. <laughs> I hear because it's it's just all speculative anyway. So people are you know more willing to uh, who aren't really good historians to do this. But you know, there's tried and true methods of determining things uh, in history, and we have some we have some criterions you know, and uh, that we apply. And I just think. I mean, what's the majority, Chad? I, I mean, you'd probably know. Is the majority a camp saying it's a later text, or is it, like, split down the middle? Or um, Pagels quotes a Harvard historian who I'm not familiar with who wants to say that it's earlier from the Gospels. But, I, I mean, it, I've got to think that the consensus opinion from, I mean, from a few of these sources that I've seen is is late. I mean, most of these people look at it as – a reflection of what a Q source might be, which is a saying source, which it might be what Mark um, used to write his gospel. And then Matthew and Luke used Mark. That's sort of how the story goes for the composition of the gospels. And I think the gospel of Thomas, it just puts some, you know, when the, there's a thing called the Jesus seminar um, and in the Jesus seminar, you try to figure out the veracity of the gospels ba- uh, based on, the sayings of Jesus and the gospel source just gives you some extra biblical source uh, to, to corroborate what is said in, in the gospels. I mean, it's a, I, I don't even, there are many scholars who choose not to participate in the Jesus seminar because it's such a fraud and kangaroo court um, and circular logic. And the, the hard thing about any textual criticism is it's circular logic. Well, I think this is early. Well, here's my evidence that it's early. See, it's early. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Know, that- Seminar is absurd. They, they they tried to present at Boise State. They contacted the history department, and the chair of the history department rejected them and said, no, you do not do scholarly work. They decided to try again, this time with the English department, and sorry to all of you English majors out there, but the English department said, sure, come on in. I'm not saying this is a criticism of the English department, but English departments just don't know a whole lot about uh, textual criticism and the reconstruction of ancient texts. Uh, English departments are usually, well, they're, they know a lot about English. And so yeah. that's, it's just not the, you know, it's just very different. Yeah, I mean, there were Eastern mystery cults, I suppose, this far west. So I guess something like this could have floated around with Q. But I just think it's clear, to, I mean, I don't know, and I'm not an expert at all, but it just seems obvious to me that this would have been like a reconstruction from some Eastern mystery cult that mm-hmm. it would have been some like Gnostic, yeah, basically Gnostic thing. Like, Hey, let's just peddle some Christian quotes. Like let's say Jesus said it and uh, you know, and sell people something. I don't know. Like that's what I would assume. I want to make sure everybody's kind of clear on, there's been a lot of reference to Q, et cetera, et cetera. I want to make sure everybody's clear on what all this is referencing. There are different theories about how the Gospels were put together. A predominating theory, I don't know that it's, I mean, it's certainly not the only one, but a predominating one among scholars today is that there was an ancient source written by one of Jesus's contemporaries, by one of his disciples, uh, in which the, the, the writer 
wrote down a group of his sayings. People have come to call this Q. Uh, and that's short for the German word quell, which means source. By the way, there is no, of course, uh, this source has not been found. There's no reference. There is some, there, there is a little bit of a reference to that source in some of the ancient fathers, but very little reference to it. So it's not 100% certain that it exists or what it is or any of those things, but it's largely assumed because of the similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels. The term synoptic means to see with one eye, because if you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you've contrasted them with John, you know that they differ greatly from John, but are very similar, both in structure and in terms of the, the, the phrases and the sayings that they use. The thing is, is that there's, of course, a lot of differences in Matthew, Mark, and Luke um, as well. And so there's always been problems uh, with this source theory, because if they were using the same source, you would think the sayings would be the same and the narrative would be the same. But there's a, there's a ton of little differences. Whereas Matthew might mention one person, Mark might mention two. And, and so it, it raises the question of why in the world these differences? So, so all this to say, there's a whole lot of scholarship that goes into trying to piece together how the, uh, or the Gospels were written. The traditional stance is Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew as he lived with, with Jesus. Mark wrote his second. Luke admittedly comes along far later and pieces together other sources and, and builds his own. That's the traditional view as handed down. So I think, anyway. I think I, the scholarly thing, though, I think now is, right, we have the pre-Markin source, and then Mark became the first gospel written. Mark's primary. So things found in what's called the triple tradition, what's common to all three synoptic gospels. Mark is essentially contained within Matthew and Luke, whereas Matthew and Luke clearly say some different things and clearly have some unique aspects. From my understanding, the debate is essentially whether Luke sourced Matthew, Luke knew about Matthew, or whether Matthew and Luke were both drawing on the third source cue. I, I think that there's more than one debate. I mean, I but, think that's a yeah. debate. I mean, that's certainly a debate. Because both of them clearly had Mark, yeah. I, I, I think is what's now agreed upon, is that well, Matthew and Luke had Mark to read, but they debate about whether... Yeah, Luke yeah. was reading Matthew well, at the time. It, it is still a very commonly believed source amongst very conservative scholars, very conservative, uh, that Matthew was primary, period. I mean, that is very... In fact, I know people who, I'm not joking, they will say, you're not a Christian if you believe Mark was first. <laughs> what? Yeah, I know, that's absurd. That's absurd. That's but I mean, insane. there's some people who take it to that extent. I'm saying this only to say, this is still a debate, for sure. This oh. is not a... This is not an accepted. This this is a highly contentious. Mark is topic. essentially agreed upon, though. I thought no, like, no. It, it's agreed that that's the majority view. I'm sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah. That is okay. That is far and away the majority view. But it's not a it's not a universal consensus view. I think you could argue that people who 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 hold to the Matthean uh, primacy, who say that Matthew was primate, mm -hmm. or, are are pseudo scholars. I think people would say that, and right. people would say that. They're doing it as a faith position rather than as a out, out of scholarship. Okay. Um, but at the same time, there are certainly people with PhDs from real universities who believe that Matthew came first. So it's not a universal consensus. But you're absolutely right yeah. that Markin primacy is the accepted view for sure. Uh, I feel like we should turn back to the Gospel of Thomas before yeah. we go too far into uh, the the 
creation of the Gospels. By the way, again, can we drive home to people? The whole reason we brought up all the Q source stuff and the saying stuff is there are a lot of passages in the Gospel of Thomas that are directly either exact replicate replicas of what appear in the synoptic gospels or very similar. Yeah. Right. I mean, they're like spin off. Yeah. So in section 46, it says among those born of women from Adam until John the Baptist, there is no one uh, so superior to John the Baptist that his eyes should not be lowered before him. Yet I have said, whichever one of you comes to be a child, will be acquainted with the kingdom and will become superior to John. So it's not word for word from the synoptics, but super similar to the synoptics. Once again, by the way, that causes some problems for people who want to reference Q. Because if the Gospel of Thomas and the synoptics are referencing the same source, why wouldn't they just quote it exactly? Yeah. Right? So you have that problem. Some people argue for a multiple source uh, yeah. set. But then you have the problem that why are they all so similar? That's, I mean, this is the synoptic problem. Why are they so similar? Why are they so different? Uh, and then same thing with the Gospel of Thomas. Why is it so similar? But why is it so different? Also, here's a section that is really interesting because one half of it is not from the Gospels and then the other half is. And this is one of the things you find, or the Synoptic Gospels, is how it splices together. So it says in 47, Jesus said, it is impossible for a man to mount two horses and to stretch two bows. So not from the Gospels. But then he goes into this. And it is impossible for a servant to serve two masters. Otherwise, he will honor the one and treat the other contemptuously. That's from the Gospels or from the Synoptics. No man drinks old wine and immediately desires to drink new wine. And new wine is not put into old wineskins lest they burst, nor is old wine put into new wineskin lest it spoil it. An old patch is not sewn onto a new garment because a tear would result. Again, almost directly lifted from the Synoptic Gospels. Yeah, and that's, and that's pretty common, it seems. It seems like it's a... It's a blend. That's why I said what I said at the very beginning where I was like, it just looks like a lot of, to me, the way I thought of it was just uh, some Orthodox language and some actual Jesus uh, sayings mixed yep. with just whatever. I yeah. don't know. Some some stuff just random. Like, yeah. I don't know. But then there's some, also some weird ones because there are also passages where it's a quote from the Gospels, but then it directly contradicts, like this one. In 71, it says, Jesus said, I shall destroy this house and no one will be able to rebuild it. So that is a contradiction. Well, it's half from the Gospels where he says, I shall or destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. This is no one will be able to rebuild it. So that's a very strange thing. Oh, also, this is something I think is interesting and I've never heard anybody address it. Thomas seems to reference Pauline writings. Hmm. which would put him at a later date. 17, Jesus said, I shall give you what no eye has seen and what no ear has heard and what no hand has touched and what uh, what has never occurred to the human mind. That's almost directly 1 Corinthians 2.9, mm, yeah. right? So, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a weird hodgepodge. But I think the most interesting thing about the Gospel of Thomas is it's called the Gospel, and yet there's no account of Jesus' death and resurrection. And yeah. I find that interesting because in many of these pseudo-gospels that appear in antiquity, they call them gospels, but they don't references, reference Jesus' death and resurrection, which it seems that the early apostles considered the death and resurrection of Christ to be the gospel. So how can you have a gospel that doesn't have that? 
Yeah, it's it's very strange that uh, I mean, well, when did it get this label? When did it receive the label gospel? Yeah, it's just uh, I'm not sure why it's even called that. As as we discussed in the email, uh, there are multiple things that are called the gospels according to Thomas. Um, I so I think it's <laughs> I, I mean that's an interesting question. I don't know the history of it. There's the cynical side of me says that someone wanted to call it the gospel of Thomas. Uh, so, so that it would sort of debunk the canonical gospels, um, and sort of rival them. Uh, however, yeah, I mean, you know what, you know, the root of gospel is just good news. Um, but yeah, it doesn't fit with what, what the, what we, what Tom defined as a gospel, which is, being critical, critically being the resurrection at the end, at, which is absent from this one, or actually from the other gospels that are attributed to Thomas. There's no mention of the resurrection. Yeah, well, and and I should, I mean, the early Gnostics were in contention with the Christian bishops, and the bishops were arguing, "Look, we are bishops at churches that were started by apostles." We have the scriptures. So the Gnostics counter was to say, look, we have a hidden gospel and to ascribe a name to it of one of Jesus's disciples. This is why you have a proliferation of second, third and fourth century uh, Gnostic texts called the gospel of Judas, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, the gospel of Philip. You have all of these gospels where people are trying to say, look what I found. It was hidden. It was a secret. But this tells us the truth. And it's their attempt to win an argument with the Christian bishops who were always just saying, look, our churches were founded by apostles. We have the authority from apostolic succession and we have the Bible. And you guys are teaching contrary to what we have been taught and what the Bible teaches. So I think that's where these terms came from. And I think the Gospel of Thomas is one of those texts. Please join us next week as we will be releasing the second part of the conversation where we will address the theological issues present in the text as well as whether or not it can truly be called Gnostic. Also check out our blog at historyofchristiantheology.com. Thanks for listening.